Yeah. So the kids are, are dismissed. I don't know uh, if you were able to hear Bruce when he dismissed them. I see most of the kids are gone, which is good. Um, just before we get into the message, a couple of uh, comments. Uh, first of all, what a blessing it is to be in a church that is being led by a plurality of elders. And uh, even on a Sunday morning, or maybe I should say especially on a Sunday morning, you see that exhibited, that this is not a pastor-led church. I have one function on a Sunday morning, that's to preach the Word. And we saw Dan leading us in prayer and devotion. We, we saw Wayne, who was leading us in, in uh, community life, reading the bands of marriage and leading in worship. And Bruce... Uh, taking up the care offering and, and shepherding us by the Word of God and His testimony. And there's many times we see Jeff as well. Jeff today was collecting uh, the, the, um, the offerings, but many times he also shares his gifts of teaching especially. So what a blessing it is. I would just commend you to continue to pray for the elders as a team that we uh, continue to be united by the Spirit of God as we seek to be under shepherds on behalf of Christ of this congregation. Uh, secondly, uh, Angie and I were at the T4G Together for the Gospel Conference. It's a conference uh, aimed primarily at pastors, but it's open to anyone, and anyone can go and listen in. And we were just tremendously blessed by that. And so we thank you for the, the time afforded that we could go down to uh, Louisville in Kentucky, and to, to worship with 10,000 people. This is an amazing experience. I don't know if, if you've ever had that opportunity, but 10,000 people singing and, and worshiping God, receiving the preaching of the Word of God. And I would uh, just recommend to you to go onto their website. I don't know that the sermons have been posted yet, but listen to all of those sermons. They were just wonderful. And to the, to the leadership, to the elders, I'm going to be uh, really encouraging us to listen to John MacArthur's message on uh, Romans 1 through 3 and Christ's reformation to the church, his call for reformation. And if, I, if there was one that I would maybe recommend to all of you, in addition to that one, it's one by John Piper. Just about a month ago, we discussed election and predestination. And John Piper spoke about the bondage of the unsaved person. And the, the necessity of the grace of God to liberate us from our bondage. And he looked at, at five aspects of our bondage. So maybe you've been wrestling with, uh, with our preaching on election, on predestination. If that's so, talk to us, talk to the elders. And in addition to that, I would re- just really recommend that you go t4g.org and look up John Piper's The Bondage of the Will. And, and just take the hour to listen to that message. Today we have three questions that we're going to be looking into. Uh, the first question is, what does it mean to walk by faith? Uh, throughout the Bible we're told to walk by faith, uh, but sometimes I wonder if we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, one way that I would exhibit that to you is when we, when we say, I will pray about that before making a decision, what is it exactly that we are deciding that we're going to go away and do? Or is that just something that we say because we don't have an answer ready? Now, is it a good idea to pray about our decisions? Absolutely it is. But what do we mean? I think underneath that, when we say, I'll go and pray about it before we make a final decision, what we're trying to say is that we want to walk by faith. 
Well, if that's what we want to be doing, and if that's what we mean when we say, well, I'm going to pray about that before I make a decision, it's, it's instructive for us to know what it means to walk by faith. So that's the first question. What does it mean to walk by faith? The second question that we're going to look at is this. Can we both believe and doubt? Can those two realities coexist in the Christian mind and heart? Can we both believe, believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in God, believe in our salvation by grace through faith, but also doubt? Or are those two realities mutually exclusive? Perhaps you might say, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, I believe in the gospel. And yet, sometimes, do you ever wonder, maybe it's not true. How, how do I know that it is true? How do I know that by trusting in this gospel, I will go to heaven? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, though I believe it, how can I believe without doubting in my own resurrection from the dead? These are real questions that I've had, that perhaps you've had, maybe we still wrestle with them from time to time. So that's the second question. Can we both believe and doubt? The third question is this. Where does joy come from? The Christian is supposed to be living a life that is filled with joy. We're told that all of the time, aren't we? we? We read about it, and even if we don't get preached on, if that doesn't get preached on every day, there's, there's this sort of knowledge that the Christian life is supposed to be a joy-filled life. And yet, for how many is that a constant reality? And so what we do usually is we begin to explain away. We begin to backpedal. We say, yes, you know, the Christian life is filled with joy, but that's not happiness. Uh, it's not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on, on what's happening in our life, and we can be miserable and still have joy. But I don't think that biblical joy is a miserable joy. It, it doesn't mean that maybe we're always happy and laughing and so on and so forth, but a miserable joy is not joy. And so we can't just explain away joy and say, well, I'm miserable deep in the core of my spirit. I'm miserable. And yet I count that to be joy because I just have to because the Christian is supposed to be filled with joy. Do you see how that doesn't quite work? So so the third question is, where does joy come from? If we as Christians are supposed to be filled with joy, where does that joy come from when life is hard, as as Bruce very plainly said, and Dan even alluded to it, life is hard. There's earthquakes and, and murders and crime and all kinds of depravity all around us. And we go through valleys. When you're in the valley of the shadow of death, where does your joy come from? How might that joy sustain us? And we're not looking to make anyone feel guilty for those days when we just need to lament and pour out our heart to God. But, but the goal is not to stay in a place of lamentation. So we're going to look at that. Three questions. What does it mean to walk by faith? Can we both believe and doubt? Where does joy come from? You might ask me, how did I come up with these three questions? Is it just random? It's not random. These three questions are connected. And we're going to receive answer to these three questions by looking at one of the heroes of our faith. The matriarch, Sarah, wife of Abraham. Let's pray. Let's pray, and then we will read the Scriptures after. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You've given us examples of faith that we might look to them and 
be instructed how it is that we might grow in our faith and knowledge, decrease in our doubts, and be overwhelmed with an abundant joy, even when life is hard. Lord, I pray for this church, my brothers and sisters in the faith, that You would bless them with faith, that they might walk by it, that You would give them answers when they're seeking with questions and doubts, and that as they walk by faith, answering their doubts, would You fill them with the joy of Christ. Help me to preach Your Word, to be faithful to Your inspired text. May my words be Your Word. Holy Spirit, edify this church, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at Sarah, but we're going to read the broader context, the introductory two verses, and then look at the faith of Abraham and Sarah combined. And then we'll focus in uh, on both of their lives, but then really glean from Sarah's life specifically. So Hebrews chapter 11, looking at verses 1 to 3, and then 8 through 12. These are the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down for our instruction. As I read these to you, remember that the the God of the universe is speaking to us. Would you please rise as we read Hebrews 11, 1 to 3, and 6 through 12 or 8 through 12, the Word of God. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are not visible. Go down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs along with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, verse 11, we're going to look at... at Abraham's wife, Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These are the words of God. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Sarah was 90 years old when she conceived Isaac. 90. Not 19. Not 19. 90. 90. Could you imagine uh, conceiving a child at the age of 90? And by the time we get to the, the, the generation of Abraham and Sarah, we're not, we're not looking at a humanity that is living hundreds of years. This was miraculous. We're told in the Bible that she was past the age where it would have been humanly, physically possible for her to conceive. Which means that Isaac, the the son conceived in her womb, was a miraculous child. 
much like Jesus later would be a miraculous child conceived in the womb of Mary, his mother, who was a virgin. Now, we know that that uh, Sarah had never conceived before. This was her first child. Hebrews 11 is explicit about this, that the power for this conception was not in her biology, but in her faith. There was a promise that was issued forth by God, and we're going to look at the, the build-up to this promise, but there was eventually a promise when, when Sarah was 90 years old, a promise given by God, and though Sarah did not believe it at first, she had doubts. That's where we're going to get into. Can we believe and have doubts? She had doubts and she laughed, but eventually, when she was rebuked by the Lord, she believed, and by that faith, God supernaturally conceived a child in her womb. And from her body and from this child, Isaac, the line of the Messiah was passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Perez, all the way down until we get to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, and to Jesus. So this miraculous child, the, the son of Sarah, is the, in the messianic line that would bring the Messiah into the world. In spite of her doubt, she considered God faithful when He promised to do the impossible. Let's take a look at the backstory before we look at those three questions that we started with. In order to answer those questions, we need to really understand the backstory, the context of this miraculous conception. And we begin in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. So just flip back in your Bible. And we're going to be weaving through the story. We don't have time, obviously, to read all of the chapters of this backstory, but I would just invite you to sometime, based on what you would learn today, go back and, and fill in the gaps, read all of the passage, all of the chapters as we skip through them. We begin our story in the land of Ur, and there was a man named named Abraham, and he had a wife, and they, for all we know, they worshipped pagan gods. They, they worshipped idols. But then the living God, the God of all creation, appeared to Abraham. This is Sarah's husband. And he gave Abraham the promises of the Gospel. And this began salvation history. From Genesis 1 through 11, what we see is, is just a downward spiral of humanity. God created humanity as the pinnacle of His creation. Then Adam and Eve sinned. And then we just, things go from bad to worse until the flood. And then Noah is saved because of his faith and righteousness. It was a righteousness gained by faith. But then he immediately sins. And we see the same pattern as, as we slide down toward Babel. And what we learn in Genesis 1 through 11 is that unless God does something unless God says we're going to save humanity not because of anything in humanity but because that is who I am then humanity is just destined to sin forever and ever until we are obliterated and judged by God so Genesis 12 1 to 3 this is the great hinge of the whole Bible as as salvation history turns and God says I'm going to do something for you Abraham and for your descendants both from your body and by faith and we are descendants sons and daughters of Abraham by faith when we believe the gospel so we're at the turning point of history right here in Genesis chapter 12 Verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. 
And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That here comes really the the kernel, the focus of the Gospel. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ultimately, what God is saying to Abraham is we bless Abraham when we believe in and bless the son of Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. And when we do that, when we bless Jesus, when we believe in Jesus two different ways of saying the same thing, then we are blessed and we are blessed with the forgiveness of our sins, adoption into Abraham's family, which is adoption into God's family, and we receive the promise of resurrection from the dead and eternal life. So all of us who do that, we bless Abraham by believing in Jesus Christ and the gospel is ours, eternal life is ours. This is the gospel. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we are proof of this text that this is true and God is trustworthy. And those who curse Abram, those who curse the son of Abraham, which is Jesus, they will be cursed. They will be condemned. They will be judged. They will be found wanting. They will not receive eternal life. This is the gospel. Now, foundational to these promises, foundational to the gospel coming into the world is Abraham needs an heir. He needs a son. He needs somebody to carry this promise forward. And what we learn very quickly is that Abraham and Sarah don't have children. And it looks like they're not going to be able to have children. And they seem to know this. And so they do something. They say, well, if if this promise that the God of creation gave to Abraham is going to come to pass. And Abraham believed that this would come to pass. So what do they do? Verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, that's his nephew, and all their possessions that they, they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The promises of the Gospel require Abram to have an heir. He's 75 years old. His wife is 65, past the age of bearing children. So what do they do? Abram goes to his brother and he says, can we adopt Lot to be our heir? That's why Lot goes with them, you see. It's because Abram and Sarah believed in the promise of God, but they had no son. They had no heir. And so they they take Lot to be their heir. That's what's happening here. They take Lot to be the heir, but Lot was not the heir. So that was the first. It was it was a mistake in that it was not what God had in mind, but it was not a sin. They were trying to be faithful. They were walking by faith. I'll just give you a hint at the answer to the first question. They were walking by faith, believing in the promises of God, that God would do the things that God said that He would do in Genesis 12, 1-3. Therefore, He needs an heir. Therefore, nephew, Lot, come with me. Be my heir. Uh, let the promise that God has given to me flow through you. But we find out later in the narrative that Lot is not that heir. Flip over to Genesis 13. 
starting in verse 8. There was conflict when Abraham and, and Sarah and Lot got into the land. They, they just didn't get along. And their servants didn't get along. And this wasn't working out. And then look at verse 8. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. We're family. Now, now Abram at this point still wants Lot to be the heir. He says, if we stay living together, this is not going to work out well. Either I'm going to kill you or you're going to kill me. Maybe not that extreme. But, but he said, this is not good. So let's separate to preserve you as my heir. Let's not not get along. We're family. You're my kinsman. You're my heir. Then he says, look, is not the whole land before you? And this is the land that God had promised to him. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And I imagine that what Abraham is thinking is, let's just the two of us divide the land that God had promised to me. Lot being my heir, I'm not giving away what God had promised me. You see? I'm just giving him a sort of a a premature down payment on the inheritance that is going to be his anyway. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's just foreshadowing some trouble that Lot's going to get into. Now, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, So now Lot is out of the picture in Abraham's mind, still living in the land that he will inherit. But now God shows up and he speaks again to Abraham. He says, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Those are the four points of the compass. In other words, God is saying to Abraham, I want you to look everywhere. I even want you to look to the land that you gave away to Lot. Okay, so you get that. Abraham is looking at all of the land, even the land that he had had sectioned off for Lot. For the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. To Abraham. Now, if we had read more fully up ahead, when Abraham had first entered into the land, he did the same thing. He walked all around it. Now that he's separated from Lot, God shows up and he says, I want you to walk around that land again because I'm not giving it to Lot. I'm giving it to you. You misjudged. Lot is not your heir. And so God rededicates this promise to Abraham without Lot. Lot is not the heir. Now, in case you you wonder, well, Adam, maybe you're reading into that a little bit much. That seems to be what Abraham himself understood. Abraham adopts another heir. So he, he replaces Lot as his heir and he adopts Eliezer of Damascus to be his heir. We don't know a lot about Eliezer, but Abraham uh, might have got him when he was fighting to protect Lot's interests. Because there was a war in, in Lot's part of the land. But just look, uh, flip over to Genesis 15, 1 to 3. Genesis 15, 1 to 3. 
after these things, so after Abram had rescued Lot, probably adopted Eliezer to be his heir, because now Abram is very clear that Lot is not the heir. After these things, the rejection of Lot, adoption of Eliezer, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The Lord said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. So Abraham is, is wrestling with God a little bit. He, he says he's a little bit less sure. I think he really thought Lot was going to be the heir, but now he, he receives the promise again. He says, God, I'm not getting any younger. And I have a plan B just in case you don't give me a son from my own body. I have adopted Eliezer. You rejected Lot. I've got Eliezer just waiting by. Do you want me to extend the promise to him? Do you want him to inherit it from me? But Eliezer is not the heir. God answers Abraham and says, no, it's not Eliezer. He's not necessary. He's not needed. Continue reading in Genesis 15 verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. It doesn't mean that Eliezer was not Abraham's son. He adopted him. He had all the right of sonship. But God says he's not the heir of the promise that I gave to you in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Although God didn't cite chapter and verse wasn't written yet. Verse uh, verse 5, And the Lord brought him outside, and he said, Look up to heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is when Abraham is saved. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So Lot is not the heir. Eliezer is not the heir. God has given Abraham just enough information to say, Abraham, the heir that is going to inherit the promise of the gospel is going to come from your own body. Now, that creates a problem. So far, we know that the heir is going to come from Abraham's body, but we we know nothing about Sarah's role in this. So believing the promise that, that... God had promised and God would fulfill his promise that that the offspring of Abraham through a a son of his own body would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Sarah herself speaks to her husband and says, well, if you're going to conceive from your own body, I am well past the age of bearing children. And even when I was of the age to bear children, there was no child that came from me for you. Therefore, I want you to take my handmaiden, Hagar, my Egyptian servant girl, and I want you to marry her and have a son by her. Flip over to Genesis 16, 1-6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Therefore... Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So how old is he? 85. After he had lived 10 years, he's 85 years old. 
Um, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to be to me be on you. This is your fault. This may have been my idea, but you should never have said yes. I gave my servant to you to embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai's basically saying, look, we were both wrong. This was a bad idea. So in case anyone thinks that the Bible sanctions polygamy, having many wives or even many husbands, it does not. Immediately, Sarai rejected what she or, or regretted what she had done. She said, we were both wrong, but surely the Lord knows that you are more wrong than me. You should have known better. You should not have done this. We can understand why she was so upset. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her whatever you please. So just trying to get out of the doghouse a little bit. He says, fine, do whatever. Uh, You're right, I was wrong. Treat her however you want. I'm not going to protect her interest. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. But they kept the son. So Hagar became a problem. But there was still hope that maybe the son conceived in this way through Abram and, and Hagar might be the child of promise, the one to inherit the promise. And his name was Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the heir. This is the third attempt at finding an heir. You might say, well, this is redundant. Well, just imagine if you're Abram and Sarah. They, they lived for decades trying to figure this out and it brought much pain to them as they tried to understand how was God going to keep His promise? Flip over to Genesis 17, verse 15. Ishmael's almost a teenager at this point. He's about ready to inherit the promise. So God finally intervenes and he meets again with Abraham. Abram had been renamed Abraham by this point. Just two different names. Abraham means father of many nations. Sarai is about to be renamed Sarah. Verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. That's information that would have been helpful decades ago. The son, the promised son, it's not just coming from your body, it's going to come from her body. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So no, sorry, Ishmael's not a teenager. He's five years old at this point. Five years old. He's a teenager in Genesis 22. But here he's five years old. That Ishmael might live before you. Uh, Just imagine being Abraham. I just don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how this is physically going to work. And he protests. He says, I don't think Sarah and I are up for this. We're old. We're tired. 
Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In 19, God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. I'll make him fruitful. I'll multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So he's got three months for this conception to take place, nine months for the pregnancy. And this time next year, a child will be born to two senior citizens power of God. As we read on, flip down, we're going to read one last passage before we answer our questions. Chapter 18, verse 9. So just to add a little bit more encouragement, maybe the couple was having, they had three months to get this done. Maybe they're having a little bit of trouble being encouraged in this way. So God visits them again just to encourage them. And they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? There's three visitors and they're angels. And one of the three might have actually been the pre-incarnate Christ. The Bible's not entirely clear, but it's the angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord with the other two angels say, where's Sarah, your wife? Abram said, she's in the tent. And then the Lord said, this is probably the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So she's within earshot. So the first time God promised Abraham alone, Abram probably came, told Sarah, she said, you've got to be kidding me. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. So God comes again. Sarah's within earshot. Sarah hears. It's exactly what it says. And Sarah was listening at the tent right at the door behind where they were. Verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Just to make the point. I mean, we know that already. But that's the whole point here, right? There's no miracle if they're young. They're old. 190. They were advanced in years. There's repetition. Just Yeah, we, we, we get that. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a very delicate way to put it. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's the pleasure of having a son, but it might even be the pleasure of the act required to have the son. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But then the Lord said, no, but you did. You laughed. Three observations of this story. It's a long story, right? Just to get all of the information. All of it is necessary in order to answer our three questions. The first question was this. What does it mean to walk by faith? As Christians, we often, we make a mess of this. In my own life, and I've shared with you in the past, I've made a mess of this. Just understanding what it means to walk by faith. When we say that we're going to go away and pray about something, what are we doing? 
when we go away and pray. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to go away and pray, but what are we doing when we go away to pray? I think what we often do is this. Uh, circumstances presented to us, we have to make a decision. We don't know what decision to make. We go away and we pray. And what are we waiting for? What would you be waiting for? You'd be, you'd be waiting for an inclination of the heart, wouldn't you? you you'd be waiting to be drawn in some way towards some decision. Uh, you'd be looking for signs, perhaps, that this is the course that you ought to take. Is that what it means to walk by faith? Do we have to read God's mind in order to walk by faith? I love the example of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, God just gave them a little bit of information at a time. And, and I think that this is very helpful for us because God is not in, in the habit of opening up the heavens and coming down while we're praying and whispering in our ear exactly what we should decide. It's not how God works. Not usually. So he gave them a little bit of information over decades. And in those decades, we see three times where Abraham and Sarah make decisions. And ultimately, God says, and that's not the decision. That's not the way that we're going. That's not the way that I'm going to fulfill my promises. No, the heir is not Lot. No, the heir is not Eliezer. No, the the heir is not Ishmael. You're not going to have an heir through adoption. You're going to have an heir that comes through your own body. Well, that's good information. Thank you for that. Then Ishmael. And the son is not going to be just from your body, but from Sarah's body. God could have given Abraham and Sarah all that information in Genesis 12, verse 4. But he didn't. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is that Isaac is a type of Christ. And Christ was a long time coming. Just as as Isaac was a long time coming... So Christ was a long time coming. And just as Israel had to wait for Christ to come, their Messiah, so Abram had to wait for the son of promise to come. That's one reason. Uh, the second reason was this child had to be a miraculous child. And, and, and so, yes, 75, 65, that's on, on the borderline of a miraculous child, but it's not absolutely miraculous. You get a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, that's a miraculous birth. So they had to wait. But as they made those decisions, looking for heirs to fulfill the promise of the gospel that God had given to them in Genesis 12, 1-3, they were walking by faith. Taking Lot was an act of faith. By, by, by taking Lot to be the heir, Abraham and Sarah were saying, we believe God, we believe His promises. Now, when it turned out that Lot was not the heir, and that was became abundantly clear, Abram said, I still believe. I still believe what God has promised me. Therefore, I am going to take Eliezer. He's a good man. I'll entrust the promise to him. And, and notice, Eliezer of Damascus, he's a foreigner. He's a Gentile. He's a Canaanite. And, and Abram might have been thinking, well, what information has God given me? In me, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Aha, Lot was too close to home. He was flesh and blood. He was my own family. We're not blessing the families of the earth if Lot is the heir. And so he goes and he finds someone that's deliberately not in not only his family, but in a different nationality, different ethnicity. So I'm going to take Eliezer to be my heir so that it's all the families of the earth. And God says, no. But that was an act of faith. Was it right? 
that Abraham slept with Hagar and conceived Ishmael? No. Was it sin? Yes. Go back to Genesis 2. Marriage is between one man and one woman. It was sin. Now this is where it gets really, really tricky. Nevertheless, it was faith. Sarah, by faith, encouraged her husband to sin because she and he believed the promise of God. Oh, we simplify the Gospel, don't we? It wasn't right, but it was an act of faith. So what do we conclude? We conclude that walking by faith is to do what Abraham and Sarah did, is to believe the promises of God and with the information we have, make decisions. Live life in the best way that we know how. I'm not saying that we should go out and sin in order that the grace of God may abound as Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar and Ishmael. But we make decisions based on the information that we have without needing to read God's mind. Walking by faith is not the same as reading God's mind. So our take home, make decision based on, uh, on your knowledge of the promises of God. What do you know about the promises of God? This is why you need to be in the Bible. When you're going to make a decision, you say, I'm going to go away and pray about that. Do that. But go away. Read the Bible and pray and say, based on this information... And based on what I know of my own giftedness, based on my own desires, the things that I would like to do in service of the Gospel to the glory of God, based on all of that, I'm going to submit my decision to God in prayer. See how that's different? Rather than going to God in prayer and saying, what should I do? And just looking for signs or inclinations of the heart. What you're doing in prayer is you're saying, God, I've, I've searched the Scriptures. God, this is the desire of my heart. God, these are the gifts that I bring to this decision. Therefore, I'm not entirely certain if this is Your will, but this is me walking by faith. This is what I'm deciding to do. Or this is what we're deciding to do. And if you are not in agreement, would you protect me from making a mistake? Would you close doors? Would you stop me from going forward in this direction? Do you see how that's different? Than mystically conjuring up something and following false leads into a decision that you might live to regret. Walking by faith is not an attempt to read God's mind about what we think He might want us to do. Walking by faith is making decisions based on the promises of God. Would you please learn that so that you don't need to endure the pain that perhaps I've endured making that mistake? Second question. Can we believe and doubt? Can we believe and doubt? Of course we can. I I love it when when, uh, the man who's looking uh, for a healing for his child says to Jesus, I believe. I do. I do believe. 
help my unbelief. And in fact, the Christian walk is, is one of growing in belief. It's about slowly casting off the doubts that entangle us. I believe, help my unbelief. Now, now, doubt is not something to be prized. It's not praiseworthy. Doubt is not something that we can, we, we can trumpet in, in, in any sort of arrogance and say, my faith is so genuine that it's big enough for doubt. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality is we all have some doubts. So let's just be honest about that and then grow in faith. Sarah did not originally believe that she was the means of bringing Abraham's heir into the world. In fact, she laughed about it. Now, I love this, what, what God is doing. There's three mentions of laughter in Sarah's biography. Uh, at first, she, she hears from Abraham and she laughs about it. She said, well, Abraham actually even laughs. Abraham laughs and then she, they probably laugh together. And then the angel of the Lord comes and confirms uh, the promise. And she laughs again. She says, now that I'm old, now that I'm worn out, now that I'm well past the age of having children, I'm going to have this pleasure she laughs about it. And that initial laughter is, is laughter of doubt. Laughter of doubt. But then she's rebuked by God. And, and, and the angel of the Lord looks at her and says, Why did you laugh? Is anything impossible for God? She, direct rebuke. And she's feeling sheepish about it. She says, well, how do I know that this angel, and she probably didn't know the full identity of the angel, how do I know that he knows the nature and the the content of my laughter? And she says, I didn't laugh in disbelief. I was just laughing because it's just such a wonderful thing. And he says, no, 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 no. You laughed in disbelief. Rebuke. And it cut her to the heart. How do we know that it cut her to her heart? Because in Hebrews 11.11 it says that she, because of the faith that she had, was given the power to conceive. So when the angel of the Lord rebuked her for her laughter, then she, she repented and she believed. She says, okay, about this time next year, I, a 90-year-old woman, will give birth to a son for a 100-year-old man. She believed. So you see progression there. If we have doubts, we must transition from doubt to faith. But let us not lose sight of the fact that Sarah never doubted the original promise of the gospel given to Abraham in Genesis 12.1-3. In fact, giving Hagar to her husband was done in faith because she believed the promise. So she believed and she doubted at the same time. And God rebuked her and then she believed fully. What's the take home? The reality is this. Some of God's promises seem laughable. They do. In fact, the, the non-believing world, they don't, not some of them, they all seem laughable. But even for us, once we're saved, some of the promises of God seem laughable. For example, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Do you really believe it? His body came back to life. Sometimes I think that is easier to believe than this. You're going to die and be buried and then whatever remains of you will be resurrected back to life. Do you believe that? Seems laughable. Uh, Do you believe that Jesus will return and reign for a thousand years? And that uh, let's say you live a hundred years in this life. That's just one-tenth of the time that you're going to live 
on this earth under the reign of King Jesus before he raises everyone back up to life and, and judges and then recreates the cosmos and we enter into an infinite age with him. Do you believe that? Seems laughable, doesn't it? Hard to believe. We can believe the gospel and not believe the depth of the promises of the gospel, which is the fullness of the inheritance that God wants to give us. Do you believe that in a trillion years you'll still be you in your glorified body? Seems laughable. But we need to transition from just believing in a gospel that's, that gives us forgiveness, as good as that is, Transition to a faith that believes the fullness of the gospel, which is resurrection from the dead and eternal life. You need to begin to picture that, believe that fully, even though it seems laughable. And if you don't believe it, may the Lord rebuke you so that you will believe. How does the Lord rebuke you? He rebukes you with the Word of God. Search the Scriptures for the promises of God and then ask yourself, do I believe this? The first laughter was one of doubt. The second laughter was one of joy. So she laughed because she doubted that she could have the child once the child was conceived and born. She laughed because of the wonderful thing that God had done for her and she named her son laughter i love that that's what isaac means it means it means laughter laughter the transition from the laughter of doubt to the laughter of joy in the fulfillment of god's promises and that takes us to our third question where does joy come from joy comes from Faith in all of the promises of God. When you actually believe that though you will die and be buried, unless the Lord returns in this generation, that you will be raised back to life, that, that should well up in you from the very center of your, of your spirit, a kind of laughter, a, a, a laughter that's not one of disbelief, but one of joy. I, ca- I can't believe it, but I believe it. I believe it. I can't believe it, but I believe it. I believe it. Help my unbelief. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live in a glorified body forever. And all of the weaknesses and the sicknesses and the ailments and the sin nature, all of that's going to be gone. And I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to touch Him. I'm going to eat with Him. I'm going to speak to Him. I'm going to bow down before Him. I'm going to worship Him, not by faith, but by sight. And I'm going to, I'm going to be gathered together with everyone who believes this. And we're all going to be standing there and we're going to look at each other. And then we're going to look at Jesus. And then we're going to look to the throne of God where God the Father is. And we're going to gaze upon the face of God which no one has been able to see because of our sin. Then I'm going to go to the other side of the Milky Way just because I can. I love it. Laughter, joy that springs up and the perspective of the gospel. The joy doesn't come from today. The joy comes from eternity. It comes from the promises of God in Christ Jesus. The birth of Isaac was impossible without God. Impossible. This does not happen without God. Therefore, God was glorified in the birth. Take home. From the faith of Sarah. When we think about the impossible promises of the gospel, we should laugh. 
We're so serious. Does the gospel make you laugh with joy? Not laughter of unbelief, but the laughter of belief. The laughter of amazement. The laughter of satisfaction and fullness. May I just say this as we close. This is going to cut a little bit intentionally because I want to contrast it with the joy of the gospel. And So what if our life is hard? So what if the next 30 or 40 years are hard? I am persuaded that today's suffering and this life's suffering is nothing, nothing compared to the glory about to be revealed to me in Christ Jesus. Now what I just said there in no way undermines what Bruce said to us earlier about walking with one another in today's sufferings. Of course it matters that we suffer today. And of course we love one another and carry that burden. But the joy, the source of joy, if we're going to have joy, is we don't focus on the suffering. We come together when we're suffering to say, remember the Gospel. Remember the eternal future that we have. And in our prayer meetings, could we, could we pray a little less? for the trivial healings and circumstantial discomforts of our life and say, in the midst of that suffering, would we have the joy and laughter of the Gospel? Rather than asking God to remove all of the suffering, which is our inclination, could we say, would the joy of the Gospel be enough for us in the midst of our suffering? It's, so, it's a totally different way of praying. And how long is our laundry list of prayers? Knee replacement. Chronic headaches. Aging body. Hospitalization. Sore throat. Examination at school. Difficult relationship at work. Should we pray about those things? Yes. Should that be 95% of our, our prayer list? No. No. You know what we need to be praying about? The joy of the Gospel. The joy of the Gospel. In our suffering. Uh, examination. This is this one for me. Let me put it on myself. Examination at school. Do I want you to pray for, for my defense of my dissertation? Sure. But you know what's a better prayer? Pray that I keep it in perspective. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to the joy of the gospel. I should be able to walk in there and walk out of there just filled with joy in the gospel. And when my body gets old and I can barely walk anymore, God willing, I should be praying that God, in spite of my immobility, will give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. We need to be praying that God will open a door that no matter what we're suffering with, we have an opportunity to share the gospel and to worship Christ with other believers. What's the source of our joy? It's not in a healthy body. It's not in a, an easy life. It's in the irrevocable, 
unshakable, sure, eternal promises of God in the Gospel. We had three questions. What does it mean to walk by faith? Make decisions based on the information you have in the Bible and of yourself. Can we both believe in doubt? Absolutely. But may our doubts decrease as the promises of God rebuke us. And where does our joy come from? It doesn't come from any circumstantial thing, but from the unshakable foundation of the promises of God, which all find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Sarah learned all three of these lessons. Therefore, she's a hero of the faith. May we be sons and daughters of Sarah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Sarah. We thank you that she's an example of faith and that by faith she conceived a man that she would call laughter who was a sign and a type of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I pray that you would help us to keep our perspective that we might walk by faith, grow increasingly in faith as our doubts are rebuked, and that this would give us the source of all joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.